Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of When Movies Were Good uh, being recorded here in Melbourne, Australia with myself, Rachel, and my weekly special guest star, Matt. And we are still recording over the phone, so thank you for bearing with us. Matt, how are you doing over there in your neck of the woods? Yeah, I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, apologies in advance if you hear any soaring from my neighbours. Oh, no, that's okay. I think my... um. My neighbours were mowing the lawn before, (laughs) but we are due to get some more rain soon, I think, so we'll see if we can knock out the episode before the rains come down. So welcome to our Clark Gable double. Really, you could do several Clark Gable doubles and not even kind of get into a lot of Clark Gable's work, but thank you for joining us. We're doing two films. It happened one night, two of these well-known films, especially It Happened One Night, 1934, which he won an Academy Award for, and then Run Silent, Run Deep, and that was done, that one was from the late 50s, so, and that one was with Burt Lancaster, and of course it happened one night uh, with the great Claudette Colbert. So, um, actually Matt suggested these two movies, and while we have done Clark Gable before in Gone with the Wind, I think, Matt, tell us a little bit about it happened one night because um, this was sort of the film that most reflected him, I think you were saying, and that's the research I've done too, his natural personality. Yeah, well, um, uh, Red Butler was one of the various types of uh, man's man over the top roles that Gable was often uh, uh, made out as if that was the only role he could play, and this role, although he is certainly uh, uh, still a leading man type, he uh, is a lot more sort of open in a open in a subtle emotion and kind of direct to the point. Uh, like definitely, he was certainly a very assertive personality. I think, regardless. Mm. Yeah, he he had a very long um, career, but I think once he played Rhett Butler, he was he was kind of I guess pigeonholed a little bit into those roles, and um, I think he, the role that he played in It Happened One Night, the role of Peter in that film, yeah, I really it was, it was actually quite different to see him in that film. So we'll just go through a little bit about Clark Gable. Obviously, we. we couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of all of the things that he did. So he was born William Clark Gable on February the 1st, 1901, and he passed away uh, from heart uh, issues, I believe, uh, November the 16th, 1960. He was yep. often referred to as the King of Hollywood. Well, he was one of the kings of Hollywood. He was definitely up there. He, was, he had roles in uh, more than 60 motion pictures. His career began... Uh, just in the early 30s, I believe, or actually, no, he was actually in some silent films in the 20s, um, and his final on-screen appearance was uh, playing an aging cowboy in the interesting film The Misfits, which was released after his death in 1961. So um, he was someone, so he was born and raised in Ohio, and then, like most people do, they sort of travel over to Hollywood and they begin their film career uh, as an extra in various Hollywood productions. But he was also encouraged to do a bit of stage work, and he did take classes and did a lot of training and stuff to get his voice at a good pitch. 
and he'd also had problems with his teeth, I read. So um, he had false teeth, apparently. He did, yeah, and um, uh, yeah, so he had to get his teeth fixed and a few other things. So once he got that done, then he was sort of on his way, and uh, and then he came upon the first film that we will talk about. He actually played um, Fletcher Christian in Mutiny on the Bounty in 1935, uh, and he was in some great films. He was in several with Spencer Tracy as well. And he apparently really liked Jane Crawford to work with, which is rare considering I heard she was a bit of a pain. <laughs> so, um, he was married four times. He had two children. One was sort of the product of an affair with Loretta Young, Judy Lewis, and then his son, uh, John Clark Gable, who was actually born after he died to his last wife, Kay Williams. He was married to uh, the great Carol Lombard as well, she died in a plane crash in 1942. And even though he was married after that, he never... A lot of people say there's something... When she died, something died with him. And uh, he was never quite the same after that. Yeah, I mean, to, to lose, you know, the love of your life in, in such a tragic way. Both of them were, were very heavily invested in the US military and did a lot of things for the troops. Obviously, Clark Gable himself served in the US military and was quite keen to see action and other sorts of things, and Carol Lombard did a lot of work for the U.S. military, uh, going around and doing various fundraising projects, etc. So they lived on a, a beautiful ranch in uh, in California, in Encino, I believe, and um, had a great life there, and things were going well. And then, yeah, she was on the plane, and it crashed into a mountain, and it was pilot error, just one of those things that happened. And, yeah, unfortunately, that was the end of that. So... Uh, the poor guy. I didn't actually realise that he had been married to her until I started researching him for this. So uh, a lot of people do carry very tragic things that happen to them. So I Matt was just... Massey, uh, went, we've gone with the window where he got like three days holiday for a honeymoon. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> very short honeymoon. Very short honeymoon, yes. So, I mean, he's really... Even a lot of younger people would have heard of the name Clark Gable, even if they can't put a name with a face. So the first film that we're going to discuss is It Happened One Night, which is a 1934 uh, romantic comedy film, which definitely had a lot of slapstick and screwball elements to it and directed by the great Frank Capra, who's um, made many famous films. So um, essentially it's like a road trip film where an odd couple, um, Claudette Colbert's character, She's like a rich heiress. She's trying to get out of, you know, under her dad's thumb because he's sort of controlling everything and she's sort of going to get married to this other guy sort of more to spite her father than anything else. And she meets up with this reporter uh, played by Clark Gable. They go on this road trip and, yes, all's well that ends well. So, Matt, what were your thoughts on It Happened One Night? Well, I thought it was a really fresh uh, film. Uh, like it, even though it's uh, approaching ninety years old, the jokes and that sort of uh, raw character of um, uh, of Clash is quite um, uh, fun to watch even now. And we are getting into a category of film which I'd like us to do a bit more of because this is actually uh, what was called a. Uh, pre-code Hollywood production because we've talked a bit about this before um, from about 1934 onwards most uh, pictures in Hollywood were 
uh, guided very strictly by what was called the Hayes Code, which yes. uh, was very harsh about any kind of um, uh, perceived immoral depictions of the screen. And uh, so, obviously, um, premarital relations um, were um, forbidden from being shown uh, on a screen properly or imply too much, but even... And, like, even the fact that uh, in this film uh, a couple, uh, like, that uh, a, or any kind of married couple can't, could not be allowed to uh, show ending successfully after in an affair. So, like, an affair couldn't be shown to succeed over a marriage. Uh, right. So that's not allowed. And even some other crazy things, like, uh, you couldn't depict uh, mixed-race mar- mixed uh, couples or... Uh, uh, homosexuality, all those things. Uh, but in this period of uh, 1929 to 1934, when you had talkies come in, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, the code wasn't so strictly applied yet, even though, like, we are talking uh, the early 30s, so nowhere near as uh, open as uh, and obvious as it would be shown now, but they actually uh, were supposed to have done quite a bit of... Uh, uh, sort of forward-thinking film. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was... I was actually... You know, they had the various scenes of them sharing uh, accommodation together, so Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert's character, and obviously they were attracted to each other, and, you know, she was sort of there undressing was, on on the other side yeah. of the curtain and everything, so... Well, the way it ended, there was no room for misinterpretation about them bringing down the walls of Jericho. Yeah. <laughs> No, not at all. And actually, look, I really liked a lot of the slapstick elements and the fun elements. Of course, one of the fun things I, I found in this film was when they were hitchhiking. That scene was quite comical and obviously Claudette Colbert's character pulls up her, hitches up her um, skirt to get a ride when Clark Gable's character's been unsuccessful with his, you know, sticking the old thumb out. And uh, I was reading that on the set, Claudette Colbert was, uh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And then they got a, essentially a stunt double, some chorus girl to come out. And she's like, yeah, I'll do it. And then she saw the chorus girl's leg. And even though it was a pretty nice leg, she's like, no, that's not my leg. I'm going to do it myself. So she ended up doing it herself. <laughs> but, of course, my favorite part, I'm sure you thought of me, was when they did get the lift from the guy that picked them up in the Model T, and he started oh, yeah. singing in the car. <laughs> I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I love it. That's what I, if you ever had a job with me, that's what I do at work all day, every day. And everyone's like, gee, thanks. We didn't really need the concert, you know, every single day. You've got to skip people out of their luggage for a living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. I know. Well, oh, I loved it. When that guy started singing and he was singing everything they were saying, I was like, yes, I love people like this. I just thought it was a really fun film. Uh, it was shot out in parts around the studios, I believe, so out in Thousand Oaks, which is kind of going past Malibu and going up that sort of way just in greater Los Angeles. Um, not past Malibu, but kind of going up that way. And sort of and back then, it, even now, it's still very hilly and tree and all that around that area. So, you know, you can kind of, it looks like you're in the middle of nowhere, especially out there. So just the, the cars, you know, I actually thought the way they photographed everything was, was quite good, you know, like their trips in the cars, they're on the bus, they're, 
they're doing this and that. And, and the picture moved. It, it moved forward and there were different things happening to both of the characters. And I thought um, Claudette Colbert was very sassy and, and, and that was a different Clark Gable for me. I mean, all of the Clark Gable films I've seen, I haven't seen a lot of them, but um, especially you just keep going back to Rhett Butler all the time. And this was just a lovely film. And um, this film won five Academy Awards, so all of the big Academy Awards that you'd want to win if you were putting a picture or actors or actresses up for anything. And, and a that that record quite a while. Yeah, it was uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 1976. They won all of those awards as well. And then Silence of the Lambs in 1991 won them as well. So um, I would, you know, I... I've seen the play of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and I'm a big fan of Brad Dourif, but I've just never been able to sit through that movie. I think I've watched the opening part of it. I'm like, no. And I have seen Silence of the Lambs, but I actually prefer prefer Hannibal and the Hannibal um, universe. But, um, yeah, so it's, you know, obviously a fantastic, but it was a really fun, rollicking uh, film. You know, the music, everything suited it quite well. And it was really nice to see Clark in that, in that film. Is there anything you want to add to this discussion on this one, Matt? Or? Well, we've seen a similar plots like uh, this in a few films that have come since then where you have uh, somebody on a, a journey that just keeps getting hindered and uh, thrown aside. And this is kind of like the last uh, era when you could have a plot like 1934, when you could have had a plot like this where you... Uh, had a genuine causes to delay them when it, because it shows how difficult travel still was at the time because they are taking the buses and everything because it was only just becoming really common then to, to have uh, air travel within the same country. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it was like plausible that you could have a, a road trip where people t- people are stuck together. Uh, apparently, this film actually was responsible for popularizing popularizing Greyhound buses. Oh, uh, why? Yeah. Well, which, I've uh, travelled on a few of those, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think if people knew what um, Greyhound buses were to become uh, afterwards, they'd be shocked. I know. And I actually, another tidbit that I read here is that scene where um, they are waiting to get... Um, hopefully a, a hitchhiked ride back to wherever they need to be. And they're sort of, you know, Claudette Colbert sitting on the fence and, and Clark Gable's eating his carrots. I was reading that that's the, the creators of Bugs Bunny got the idea. You know how he sort of sits against the fence and what's up, Doc, and he's like eating it. Apparently they got that idea from watching him in that movie. Eating the it's carrots possible. near the fence. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's fascinating because I didn't realise like how... Uh, much a part of sort of popular culture this film was for ages. Yeah, I didn't realise that either. I was like, that's interesting. And I didn't realise that his name um, was inspiration for the name of Clark Kent, Superman's uh, alter ego. So I didn't know that. And there was an, another actor with the name, I think I, now it's going to leave me, Kent. I can't remember his last name, but he, he's the other part of it. Well, I guess it's not surprising. I mean, like, Superman, I think, came out about the same time, and really, who was more famous than Clark Gable? Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, yeah. So it's actually amazing how much he, uh, 
he sort of um, really shaped a lot of like the perceptions of manliness. And uh, but this was a lovely film. I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was a lot of fun, and and I like films from this era. And you're right, we'll have to. Um, we've already already picked our next two films, but maybe we can do like a pre-code double or something like that. Um, yeah, after we've done our next two five years. Yeah, definitely. So we'll move forward now um, as the show goes on to Run Silent, Run Deep. So this is a, a film from 1958. This is definitely part of the end of Clark Gable's career because sadly he passed away and he wasn't old. I mean, back then, 59 was considered older, but now it's like, hey, I'm just kind of getting started on the third phase of my life type thing. So this film Probably also is... also started to get the heart biopsy at the time as well, yes. though. Yes, that's true. <laughs> So um, Run Silent, Run Deep, you know, this was also shot in black and white. Uh, this one was from United Artists and it's based on a 1955 novel of the same name written by someone who was in the military, Edward L. Beach, Jr. It was directed by Robert Wise and, man, Robert Wise certainly has directed a wide variety of films from West Side Story and Sound of Music to Star Trek, the motion picture. So he was at, at the helm of this and he did a wonderful job because there was a lot of technical things going on in this film. Uh, and it starred Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster and obviously the title is about the submarines and how they dive down and run silent and run deep. So essentially this is a little bit like, I don't know Matt, would you say sort of a Moby Dick type story um, about Submarine war, warfare That's in the very uh, sort of very similar, um, because yeah, they are sort of searching for this uh, because they're not really going on a generic mission. Clark Gable really wants to target a specific um, military object for this, or it's almost or it's almost like a, uh, treated like a Bermuda Triangle, uh, where it's like you have this mysterious place where we all have failed to come out successfully, and we are going to find out the source of that danger. And the Olympics are a good simile. And I, I was very glad to ha see another military film with Burt Lancaster um, because I loved um, his uh, portrayal in uh, From Here to Eternity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think in this era there was a lot of these sorts of, you know, now that there was a little bit of distance between, you know, the US and the war, um, even though they had other wars going on at that time, like the Korean War, etc. But I suppose they were now ready and especially having a bit more technology. I thought, I mean, this film is about a submarine. So the sets in the submarine, you know, the water coming in at various points, even though obviously when they were above the submarine on the water, that was, you know, on a sound stage. But I still thought it was quite effective. And yeah, well, when you do it right, submarines are a great setting for a suspense movie because you're in this enclosed space and you uh, can only see, especially then you can only see and sense so much of what's going around, on around you and you have to go on faith and uh, uh, to stay out of danger because you need to be quiet all the time. It's a, a very yeah. um, good way to set a story. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so as Matt was saying uh, about the plot, it's... Um, Basically, Clark Gable's character, PJ Richardson, is determined to get revenge on a Japanese destroyer called the Akakazi, if I'm saying that right. And it's Ace Captain, and he's got the nickname of Bungo Pete because um, this guy sunk four US submarines around the Bungo Straits. So, um, and he, basically, he persuades the Naval Board to give him a new submarine command. 
and Burt Lancaster plays his executive officer on there. And there's a, you know, a battle of the wills there, especially when Kite Gable's character gets sick and, you know, someone's lying about the mission and all this sort of stuff. So there's, you know, themes of loyalty and following the chain of command. And also it was lovely to see a young Don Rickles in this film. I'm sort of grew up watching Don Rickles, you know, in various shows, you know, that from the 60s, 70s and 80s on reruns and things like that. And he, I always really enjoy his comedic work. So it was nice. I saw the face and I'm like, oh, my God, that's Don Rickles. So, yeah, yeah it was lovely. It's always lovely fun to, to see the faces that you know will be bigger later in the earlier parts. Yeah, especially when they're kind of, although he was kind of, you know, still playing a very kind of out there sort of character compared to some of the other men on the, on the, um, on the submarine, but um, I just thought the complexity of this film, the way they shot the battle scenes, I know they did have help from the US Navy and the actual submarines um, to, to actually help them shoot it, a bit like Top Gun, how they had to go out to Miramar, California and, and shoot with the jets out there and all the rest of it. They couldn't really do it without an agreement from them. And obviously they, you know, sort of in the vicinity of going back to Pearl Harbor and we know what happened there. But I, I just thought this was a very sort of entertaining... It wasn't a long film, too. It was only like 90 minutes or so. So they really got in there and they just moved the plot along and moved the plot along until, you know, Burt Lancaster's character, you know, you know, he takes over the command, essentially, and he goes in and finishes the, the mission for Clark Gable's character. And there's sort of, you know, a bit of a sad ending for him. Well, it's kind of like uh, one of those films in the Raiders of the Lost Ark category where it's the plot's like really cleanly divided into comic book-like segments and so you can uh, quite readily visualise in your head uh, every stage of the storyline. Mm, yeah. Um, do you... The underground... Um, sorry, underground. Underwater uh, battle scenes, that, yeah. they would have been done with models. Wouldn't they, or, or would, oh, like they when have you see some... the um the sub the subs floating through water and stuff? Yeah, that it does look that way. And like there are some spots where you can tell uh, fairly clearly that it's a, a model going for the water. Like uh, the bubbles may be a bit large and stuff. And we talked a lot about this during the Titanic film episode, but it works a lot better in this one because you don't have. Uh, uh, something of human scale next to it to um, sort of uh, exaggerate the limitations of the special effects. So, like in Titanic, we saw all the strange perspective of lifeboats against the the wreck sinking. So, in the submarine yeah. context, it worked a lot better. Yeah, I always um, hearken back to um, <laughs> just to digress a little bit on Raise the Titanic. They had that brilliant model that they used um, for the raised version of the Titanic. And apparently someone had uncovered some footage. I believe it was actual footage of the original version of the model that they made when it was all painted black and white and all the rest of it. And they depicted the sinking of the Titanic with the large model as well before they sort of changed it to be the model that raised. And someone said, oh, you know, it was just this really odd-looking version of the sinking. And someone said in the comments, uh, now I know why we cu they cut it out. <laughs> 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 it was just a deadpan comment. Oh, that was interesting. Oh, yeah, now I can see why they cut it out. <laughs> so well, it's it always sort of past, can, yeah. yeah. Well, it is amazing what you can do with just models. I mean, look at all that they did with the 2001 Space Odyssey and the space uh, 
scenes of the crafts moving about in the, mm. the space. Yeah, exactly. And I was actually um, interested to research a little bit about submarines after I thought, God, I didn't realise they had quite this technology, you know, back in the 40s and 50s. But then I was reading the very first submarine, uh, or they called it the Turtle, or one yeah. of the first versions of a submarine was something they used during the Revolutionary War. It wasn't very successful. It was meant to put, um, you know, a stealth, sort of, it was almost like a barrel that they had waterproofed and the guy was in the barrel sort of pedalling it and he was sort of just going around and going near the ships that were, the British ships that were harboured and trying to put like a charge next to them or something. I thought, wow, gosh, I didn't realise. And even there were some things before that even. So I was yeah. like, wow. Well, even Da Vinci um, gets out an idea where if uh, you were to uh, have a type of breathing apparatus on the surface connected by pipes to divers that would swim uh, uh, towards uh, enemy ships and drill holes. And so, yes, uh, the theory of uh, being able to sort of swim close to the enemy uh, by one means or another and drill a hole uh, kind of uh, goes a long way. It's uh, much like uh, the sea equivalent of the underground explosive earth tech tactics that the Ottomans used so well. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Yeah, it's, I mean, the history of the submarine is a lot more long and extensive than I thought it was, and there's still, it's still not a perfect uh, technology by any means, because they still do have a lot of tragedies on submarines even to this day. Well, especially um, as uh, when this film is said, it wasn't, they weren't actually technically in submarines in the truest sense. They were in something closer to, um, like I know for the German side, we call them uh, U-boats. I'm not sure if uh, that was the same term for the American Navy, but you'll notice that uh, it's not actually fully submerged the majority of the time. Really, it's more like a very low draft um naval vessel that's able to dive when necessary and uh, shoot torpedoes, but it's not like a full-time underwater craft. That came after World War II. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, that was... Yeah, I was thinking... I didn't realise if it was that sort of advanced. Um, I think the one of the people that worked on the film with um, Clark Gable, because by this time he was obviously getting older and not not going into retirement yet but he was working a nine-to-five schedule every day. So, and he was a real stickler for that. So everything had to be done. And a lot of these actors like Humphrey Bogart and stuff, they kept, a, you know, as they were getting older, they did keep that schedule. But they were still very professional and came in and did the work. But well, I think that's to, the approach to work. Yeah, exactly. You've got to have boundaries. And I think once you've been in the industry long enough, and as long as you're turning up and you're doing a full day's work, then at least they know they've got you. Um, and, and poor people like Marilyn Monroe, who, you know, God knows when she'd show up sort of thing. <laughs> and well, and was that was reading, a good segue, yeah. Well, I was reading um, just yesterday about this um, poor um, younger actor who ended up taking his own life because he'd been a child actor. He'd And like a lot of um, child actors, they have a bit of a struggle to um, move on to adult acting careers yeah. and he was yeah. feeling rather depressed about that and when a more recent role sort of let him down and reviving his career, he ended up drinking a lot and taking in his own life and that's the sort of um, that's where kind of ha approaching a 
a craft in, in a more professional time manner can probably um, help you mentally a lot. I mean, uh, certainly there's not a one simple explanation for every uh, problem with mental health, but um, definitely I think that's uh, one way to help uh, um, cope with the pain of uh, ups and downs. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah, I think a lot of um, a lot of actors of that caliber were sort of towards the end of their career. They had to do it. I mean, if they wanted to keep performing, then they needed some sort of structure. And uh, yeah, so and and then, of course, uh, that was the video system that you were. Yeah, that still that that still was. Although, according to my mum, you know, uh, Clark Gable died because Marilyn Monroe frustrated him so much on the on the set of The Misfits. So I don't know how true. <laughs> I don't know um, if that's necessarily true, but I think he was frustrated um, at shooting various components of The Misfits, and I. Uh, understand that Marilyn was, you know, uh, even though a lot of people loved her, she was a difficult person to work with because she, as yeah. Jack Lemmon said, she worked at her own time, on her own time sort of thing. And uh, so that made shooting a film, even though the film turned out pretty good, you know, uh, it made shooting the film a little bit hard. So um, this was one of his last ones. And, it, you, you know, it was apparently the original author didn't think it was that great, but it probably took their artistic license and you know, obviously the authors don't particularly like that if they feel their story is strong enough or it's fine just the way that it is. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I often think if I were to be a writer and somebody uh, wants to take on my film rights, I'm like, okay, it is going to basically go out of my hands eventually. Even if I refuse during my lifetime to give rights and stuff, it'll, it'll happen. So it's like you may as well just negotiate for the best um, deal possible and um, if you don't want to, uh, to be disappointed by the results. Don't see it in the theatre. Yeah. <laughs> well, they definitely took a lot of artistic license on, um, you know, lots of different films. So everyone's like, oh, the book is so much better. And it is. But sometimes I think the film works better than the book. So I Well, there's always... a classic um, cartoon of two goats and uh, one is uh, eating a... Uh, and one is eating a film canister, and uh, he says, "I think the book was was better." Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, so anyway, so two really interesting films, very interesting films in their own right. Um, if war movies aren't your thing, then maybe Run Silent, Run Deep might not. Necessarily, even though it's quite entertaining, and Burt Lancaster is very strong in the film as well. Um, it's but not a I violent it, uh, story, though. It's more about tension and coping um, with loss. Yes, that's right, and um, loyalty, and and it has elements of Moby Dick and and some other sort of familiar storytelling tropes in it. And but I think everyone should, if they can, check out It Happened One Night. I saw that there was like a, a telly movie remake of it made in the seventies, so I might. I think I saw that on YouTube somewhere, so I think I might check that out and see if that's... I saw a few familiar faces, so I might check that one out and see what that's like. So, Matt, we'll just quickly, before we head off today, just introduce our next classic movie double here on When Movies Were Good. Um, we're going to do... <laughs> we're going to do the great Cary Grant. We've... Um, I think we've definitely done a few films with him in it. But this one's for him. 
So we're going to do his classic film, His Girl Friday from 1940. And then for all the Hitchcock fans out there, but one of the reasons we did choose this film is because it's just from a very different era of his career. And that's the great um, film North by Northwest, 1959. So that's our Cary Grant double. And we're looking forward to that one. I've obviously seen, Matt and I have seen North by Northwest several times, I guess, each. But I'm always happy to rewatch it, and, and I've I'm really four times. Yes, yes, yeah, it's going through my head as well. The great Bernard Herrmann, and I'm looking forward to seeing his Girl Friday because I've always heard the title of that film and I've never seen it. So, uh, yeah. looking forward to that one. So Matt will just quickly run you through where you can find us on social media. So go ahead, Matt. Yep, no worries. So we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at When Movies Were Good. And we release this podcast on YouTube, on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So please subscribe to our channel wherever you hear podcasts and uh, leave us a great review if you could spare the time. It helps us get in front of more people. Thank you so much, guys. So we do look forward to um, hanging out with you next time while we chit-chat about some great films from the period of when movies were good. And in the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and have a great one.